You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. And a good word it is. Stonegate, we doing okay this morning? Man, we are doing awesome this morning. Okay, great. Um, Well, if you're new with us today, uh, it is so wonderful to have you. We are praying for you today in particular, just asking that the Lord would meet with you in the ways that would be helpful. And if you are new, if this is your uh, first time to be here, uh, there's a connect card that looks like this in the seat backs in front of you. And if you'll just make sure at some point during the service, uh, you grab that card, fill that out. Um, At the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. You can either put that card in the basket at the end of the service, or you can take it to the connect center, which is just right out there in the lobby. And they'll exchange that card for a gift. So if you would do that for us, it would help us serve you going forward, follow up with you, um, all of which we would just find such a privilege uh, to do. And if there's any way we can pray for you, there's also a black card that says prayer on it. And if you'll fill that card out, drop that in the offering basket at the end of the service, that would put you on our prayer list. And again, we would just find it to be such a joy to be able to intercede on your behalf. So if there's any way we can pray for anyone in the room, feel free to do that. That would be great. Okay, so today we are taking another step in our set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And I've started every one of these sermons out the same way. Um, by reminding us of the underlying conviction that just sits below this set of sermons. And that underlying conviction is that we need the, the whole Bible, the entire Bible, to make whole Christians. If you want to be a whole Christian, you need your whole Bible to, to become one. Because the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, it all tells one grand story about one great person. And his name again is... Jesus. That's what the whole Bible is about. It is all about Jesus. And and what we've been doing for the last several months in this set of sermons is we have just been been, um, working through some Old Testament passages so that together we can learn how to see Jesus on every page of the scriptures, in particular those pages in your Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible. So that's what we've been doing, and today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. So it would be really helpful to have that out and open there on your lap so you can read along with us and follow along. Exodus chapter 33. That's where we're going to be today. Now, let me um, um, sort of catch us up on on where the story is in Exodus. Obviously, Exodus 33 doesn't appear in a vacuum. It comes after the first 32 chapters of Exodus. So the, the, the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus starts with the people of God in Egypt, and they are being oppressed by Egypt. Um, They are being beaten down, enslaved by Egypt. And God hears their cries, and God sees them in both their suffering, and it is intense suffering. If you read the first few chapters of of the book of Exodus, he, he sees them in their suffering and in their sin. And in this beautiful picture of redemption, God sets them free from Egypt. He brings them out of their slavery in, in Egypt. But, and this is an important thing to note in the story of Exodus, God didn't just save them from something. He didn't just save them from Egypt. More importantly, he saved them for something. It wasn't just to remove them from this. No, he had things he wanted to give the people of Israel. So he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to bring them, and this were his two most precious gifts, to, to himself that, that was thing number one, to, to his presence, to himself, and to their new home, this beautiful place called the promised land. Uh, but before God takes them to, to this new place, the promised land, he, he first brings them to Mount Sinai. 
And it's there, as they're at the base of this mountain, that Moses goes up and God gives his people the law. This is in Exodus chapter 20. God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes back up the mountain in chapter 25 to meet with God again. And this time, it's not about the law. It's all about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is God's place to meet with God's people. It's the the place that God's presence would dwell, that God would be there and present among his people. And then you get to chapter 32 of Exodus, just one chapter before where we are today. And uh, in this chapter, Moses is up getting all these tabernacle instructions, and the people of God grow impatient. Moses has been up on that mountain way too long, much longer than they could endure. So so they get with Aaron. They give Aaron all of their gold. Aaron throws that gold into a furnace, he says, and out pops a golden calf. And uh, the people of God take this golden calf and they begin to worship this golden calf. Now, that episode in Exodus 32, this idolatrous sort of moment where the people of God have broken the law of God, now forms what is happening and and informs what's happening in Exodus 33. God puts tabernacle instructions on hold and God comes down with Moses to respond to the people of Israel's sin and idolatry. And, And here's God's response to God's people in Exodus 33. Here's God's response. First three verses. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. Verse 2 of Exodus 33. God says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out in the promised land. I I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's, in other words, a land that you're going to be prosperous in. That's milk and honey. It's a sign of prosperity. You, you, you go to this land and you're going to be prosperous in this land. Go up to, the, to, to this land flowing with milk and honey. But, God says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, this is an amazing text. Uh, This text shows us what sin does, what it always does. Sin separates. It drives a wedge between God and his people. So so because of their sin, God pulls back from the people. Now, now why would God pull back from the people? Well, this text shows us. Uh, The text says, lest he, lest God, in, in God's holiness, lest he consume them. But because of their sin, if, if God, a holy God, comes down and interacts with them, it is going to be over their sin that he interacts with them, and his holiness is going to consume them all, kill them all. So, so, so God pulls back in light of their sin. Now, it's an amazing thing what God says after he pulls back. God pulls back, and, and then he says this, but, but here's what I will do for you. Here's what I will do. I'll go ahead and give you one of my best gifts I'll go ahead and give you this, the beautiful gift of of this place. I'll give you the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land, you're going to be prosperous. It's going to go so well for you in that land. I'll give you these gifts. You you can go ahead and have this beautiful land. You can prosper in that land. You can have all of those things. I'll even send an angel into that land to drive out the inhabitants of that land. I'll do all of that for you. You can have this promised place, but here's the catch, God says. 
it will be a place without my presence. You can go have the, the best gift that I have, this indescribable gift, but it's going to be a gift without me, your God. So you can have the gift. It's just going to be a gift void of me. It's going to be a place without my presence. Now, in a lot of ways, this is the question. I just want to allow this text to bring to center stage for us. This is the question it's asking the people of God back then, and it's the question it's asking us today. Will we be content having place without presence? God's incredible gifts. I mean, think of all the gifts we can experience in this world. Are we okay with having all of these incredible gifts, God's gifts to us? Are we okay with having these gifts just without God? Are we okay with that? How would we respond to, to, this, to this question that, that, that this text raises up? Like, just imagine if God came to you and said, I mean, it's almost Christmas. And, and this Christmas, I'm going to be giving out some of my best material gifts. They're going to be amazing gifts. I, I'm going to be giving these out. Now, just imagine what you might fill in the blank of, of what you might be asking from God if God came to you and just became the genie, right? You just ask what you want, and I'll give it to you. Just imagine what, what you might fill that in with. Uh, for some, it's, it's if I could just be married. That, that, would, that, that would be it. For some, it's if I, if I could just have kids, if I could just have this great job, if I could just have my health back and restored and, and be in good health, if I could just have great friends, if I could just have prosperity, I mean like enough money to just take a bath in. If I could, if I could just have that, that, that would be the thing. Just fill in what, what yours would be. Maybe it's a new home. Maybe it's a new car. Maybe it's the ministry sort of opportunities that you've always dreamed of. Just, just think of, of God's best gifts and God coming and saying, I'll give you those gifts. Whatever it is that you want, but, but, but here's the case. It's just going to be that gift void of me, God. How would you respond to that? Would you be okay with that? This is, this is the question the people of God in Exodus 33 are being confronted with. And I, I just want to allow this question of Exodus 33 to confront us this morning. Would we be okay with that? Now, let me say just a couple of clarifying things about God's good gifts in this world. It is good and right and biblical to enjoy God by and through enjoying God's gifts. That, that is a good, right, biblical thing. I mean, think about how God has made the world. God has made an amazing world, hadn't he? I mean, just so many amazing wonders that God has put into his material creation. And God has given us five senses to experience those amazing things through. I mean, God has made a world like that. I I'm going to, to bake into this world amazing wonders, then give you senses, my people's senses, so that you can experience these wonders. And, and God has done all of that so, so that in experiencing those wonders with, with your senses, you can see through those gifts all the way to God who gives those gifts. I honestly cannot believe what happens inside of my mouth when I bite into a good steak. Th that is an amazing thing, isn't it? I, I honestly, I cannot believe 
that's possible. It's amazing. God gives us the wonder of food, of a great steak, the senses to, to take that in, and every time we bite into a great steak, it is meant to say something about the satisfying taste of God. It's meant to, it's meant to, to, to bring to our minds Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? That's right. This is what a great steak is supposed to do. This is, this is what every one of God's gifts are supposed to do. We're supposed to see through the gifts, and as we enjoy that gift from God, we are supposed to, to get behind that gift all the way to the enjoyment of God. That's how all of God's gifts should work. So it's good and right and biblical to enjoy God through his gifts. But here's the danger. Our hearts are spring-loaded to, to grab for God's gifts in a way that makes God feel optional. This is a temptation in your life, in my life, in all of our lives. Our hearts are spring-loaded east of Eden to grab for the gifts over God. This is all of our problems in the room. I mean, think about how God has made the world. He's made a world where God is necessary, his gifts are optional. That's how God's made the world. He is necessary, his gifts are negotiable. But east of Eden, our hearts have a way of, of feeling and thinking the exact opposite. Our hearts naturally think, no, it's, it's God's gifts that are necessary, and what's negotiable is God. That, that, that's the negotiable part of this thing. And this text is looking at all of us and asking us, have we been seduced into believing that? That, that God is the one who's negotiable, his gifts are the ones that are necessary. Is this the way we're seeing and thinking about the world? It's, it's asking us the question in our life, what is necessary and what's negotiable? Now, just think about that in your world for a moment, in your own heart. What, what, is, what is the thing that is necessary? And, and then in light of that, what are the things that, that are then negotiable? Are we okay with gifts from God just without God? About a decade and a half ago, I, I remember reading this book called God is the Gospel. And this is really the, the, the point of that book is to get down into this question. And I'll never forget coming across this paragraph. I just want to read this paragraph to you. The author said this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, right? I mean, it's just a world that, that in so many respects is perfect. But then here's the critical question. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Now that's the question that I just want us to wrestle through this morning. And, and as we wrestle through that, the critical question is not, um, do I know that the answer should be, no, Christ would have to be there. That, that's not the critical question. It is do you know the right answer? That the critical question is, Deep down in your bones, deep down in your heart, what answer exists? 
When it comes down to, to God versus gifts, what is necessary and what's negotiable? What, 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 is, what is deep down in your heart? What, what is the answer to, to that question? And I just want to encourage you, don't let yourself assume that God's the answer to that. Don't assume that. Uh, there are plenty of pictures and people in the scriptures of, of these moments where people uh, in, in some ways would affirm intellectually that of course God's above everything. Yes, the right answer is, is God. Y yes to that. But w when the sort of rubber meets the road, gifts are what they choose. Uh, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus comes to him after he asked Jesus the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus' final answer to him is, okay, how about this? Go and sell all that you have and then come and follow me. And do you remember what happened to the rich young ruler? He couldn't do it, could he? If you were to ask him intellectually right before that, I think he would have said, of course God is, is, is above gifts. Of, of course he is. But, but when the rubber met the road, it was gifts over God deep down in his heart. When, when Jesus created the fork in the road, it wasn't a both and, God and gifts for the rich young ruler. When, when the fork in the road moment happens, when it was either gifts or God, when it was either you can keep your money and lose God, or you can lose your money and get God, when it was either or, he just couldn't let go of the gift. Deep down in his heart, it was gifts are necessary. This money, that, that's what's really necessary. God is negotiable. And that's the question that we need to, to work out this morning. Don't assume it. Question it inside of you. Deep down in your heart, is God negotiable? Deep down in your heart, have gifts become necessary? And, and this is really, in a lot of ways, the angst that I feel this morning, because so much of what passes for Christianity in our culture is really, in a lot of ways, sub-Christian. It's sub-Christian. When, when a person asks me, uh, what is a Christian? I'll oftentimes uh, say something like this. Well, uh, uh, a Christian is a person whose heart says this with the psalmist. Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. That's a Christian. That's someone who says with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. Th that, that's a Christian. Someone who says with David in Psalm 63, uh, verse 1, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, it thirst for you, O oh God. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Th that's, that's a Christian who says with David in, in verse 3 of Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life. Y your love is better than life for me. Now my lips will praise you. Th that's a Christian. It's someone who says with Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. That, 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 that's a Christian. Verse 23 of Philippians 1, who says with Paul, I'm hard pressed between the two, but my desire is to depart and be with Christ because with Christ is better by far. Th that's a Christian. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has been brought from death to life, who's gone from unresponsive to God. God just does nothing for them. 
right? Just unresponsive to God, to, to a heart that's enthralled with God, captivated by God. That, that's what a Christian is. A Christian's a person who has been fundamentally changed by, by God. Down at the deepest levels, all the way down at the level of desire. Not just what you do, not just your behavior, but all the way down at the bottom levels of your soul. Like, what is it that I want above everything else? A Christian is someone who says God to that. A Christian is someone who has come alive to God. A Christian is someone who, who the greatest thing in the universe, namely God himself, has become the great thing to their soul. Th that's what a Christian is. And if that's what a Christian is, then it helps us see what a Christian is not. A Christian is not someone who can stomach a version of heaven or earth bursting with God's best gifts, but, but just void of God. A Christian cannot stomach that. A Christian could not do that. I love what one author said. He said, people who would be happy, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, listen to this, will not be there. Because a Christian is someone who God has become the great thing in their life. That the greatest thing in the universe has become the great thing to their soul. So don't assume it. Ask it. If you, if you, or could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you? But when it comes down to, to gifts or God, what's negotiable and what's necessary? Now look at their answer. Their answer is amazing here. Look at verse 4 of Exodus 33. It says, when the people of God heard this disastrous word that this disastrous word that they mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses say to the people of Israel you are stiff-necked if for a single moment I should go up among you I would consume you so now take off your ornaments that I that I may know what to do with you therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward now just feel what's going on in this passage they get word. They can have God's best gifts. This place called the promised land where they would be prosperous. It's this land flowing with milk and honey. They, they have, they're being welcomed into the thing they've always wanted, a place, a place to call home, this, this promised land. But it's going to be a promised land without the promise maker. It's going to be a gift without God. Now look at their response. Here it is in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They mourned. Now, now, as a general rule, when you look back at the Old Testament, and if you're trying to answer the question, how should I um, respond to God? What, what is the best way for me to respond to God? Generally speaking, just look back at the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and whatever they do, do the opposite of that. That's, general, that's the best rule of thumb for, for what you should do and how you're responding to God, the opposite of what they do. But this is one of those moments where they get it exactly right. That They get word. God says, you can have the promised land, but it's going to be void of the promised maker. You can have my best gift. It's just going to be void of me, your God. And, and when that moment happened, when God said that, it felt disastrous to them. That they fell to the ground and they, it says they mourned. 
This, this was the worst thing they could imagine. Their response deep down was, no, this is not okay. This is not what we want. God, we want you more than your gifts. God, you are the one thing that is necessary. You are the one thing we cannot do without. This is why Moses says in verse 15 of Exodus 33, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do, do, do not, do, do you see that heart? It's a heart saying, God, you are the greatest thing in the universe and my heart knows that. You are the one thing I cannot do without. You are the one thing that's necessary. If, if you don't go, we're not going. Because if you don't go with us, how will we ever have rest? That's verse 14 of Exodus 33. He goes on to say, how will we ever be recognizable as your distinct people in verse 16? It will never work without you, God. This is, this is what Moses is saying to God. This is what the people of Israel feel when they're presented with, yeah, you can have this great gift just without God. They're feeling deep down, no, this is disastrous. In Exodus 33, the people of God are learning a fundamental lesson. It's a lesson that you and I have to learn along with them. And here's the lesson. Nothing with God is better than everything without God. Nothing with God is better than everything without God. Do you, do you believe that? Don't assume it. Ask your heart that. N nothing with God is better than everything without God. That, that's the lesson that he's teaching them. That God's gifts are worthless without God. And that's the lesson that he's teaching us this morning. Nothing with God is better than everything without God. Now, why is it that we have to learn this lesson? Why is that lesson so crucial to us? Well, here's one reason. Because one day, the brokenness of this world will break into your life. One day it's going to happen. That the brokenness of this world is going to break into your life. One day it will. If you could just, if you could know the, the just heart-wrenching stories in and around our church of that happening, you would just probably be in a, just melt into a ball of tears this morning. Just such difficult stories of this very thing happening. The brokenness of this world breaking into human lives. There's a guy in our church that if you could just rewind the clock two years ago, you would find him out running. You would find him climbing 14ers you would find him uh, being a very active human being, just doing, doing, doing all the time, super active. And then all of a sudden it becomes, gosh, I don't remember being this clumsy. Uh, then that becomes, well, gosh, uh, I can't even walk on my own. Then that progresses in a very short time to um, waking up every morning wondering what is not going to work physically today. Then that going to, and again, a very short amount of time, I don't have much longer left to live. Now, imagine yourself in that moment for a second. What, what if that's two, two years ago, you're active, you're doing your stuff, and then all of a sudden, you, you fast forward two years from now, and you, you wake up, and that's your reality. Just, just imagine that for a moment. H how are you going to make it in that moment? H how, how are you going to make it? W what are you going to do in that moment? And in the end, there is only one way to make it. For you to be, for you, for you to have become personally, deep down in your bones, convinced 
that nothing with God is better than everything without God. That's the only way we make it in this fallen world. That's the only way we, we survive these sort of moments is for the greatest thing in the universe to have captured our heart as the greatest thing. That's the only way we make it. And can we all just confess this this morning? It is hard for our hearts to believe day in, day out, moment by moment, that God really is the greatest thing. We're all so prone. We have all come in this morning with lesser things, smaller things, having crowded God out of that spot of the greatest thing. We're all so prone to, to thinking, no, it's, it's these small things that are really the great things in our life. If, if someone were to ask me, what, what is like one of your goals week in, week out in preaching? What, what, what is that? Here's one of the ways I would say it. One of my goals is to every week try to, try to keep us convinced by the grace of God that the greatest thing in the universe is God, and then for our hearts to actually feel that. That's one of my main goals for us just week in, week out is that we would leave here convinced our hearts just enthralled by God as the greatest thing in the universe. Because when, when this fallen world, this broken world breaks into our life, it is the only thing that keeps us together, is, is actually believing that nothing with God, God is so great, that nothing with God is better than everything without God. Caleb, uh, my 10-year-old, he, uh, he is a question asker. So we were in the car the other day, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, Dad, what would you do if you had one day left to live? what would you do? And um, I'm like, well, Caleb, I don't know what the whole day would entail, but I think this is the first thing I would do. I would schedule a breakfast with a group of people, and here would be the one prerequisite for who I would invite. I would want to get the eight to ten people in and around my life who really believe God is the greatest thing in the universe, and I would like to have breakfast with them where we could talk about that. Because I think if I were dying in the next day, I would need help believing that. So that's the first thing I would do. Because if any of us are ever going to die well, here is the only way it happens, is for us to actually believe God is the greatest thing in the universe so that we can say along with Paul, if I depart and, and I go to be with Christ, it is better by far. So I don't know what else that day would hold, but I know I would definitely need the day to start with that. Um, one of my new favorite people in and around our church family, I'm just going to call her Miss C. She's been coming for a couple of months, and she has been such an encouragement to me. Um, typically after we, uh, uh, one of our services, she'll typically come up front and uh, and we'll talk for a few minutes, and she got to Stonegate, and she, she came here with a limp, hurting, discouraged, in a really dark place. And here recently, after one of the services, she came down, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, I can't, I can't really believe I'm still alive. My husband's died. Uh, most of my friends have started dying. I feel really lonely, and I, I, I can't believe God still has me alive. But, but, do you, do you know why I think God has me alive? I think it's so that I can get to know him better now so that when I meet him face to face, I'm actually gonna know my God. And I just remember hearing that, just thinking, God, help me believe that's the greatest, that's the greatest reason I'm alive today. That the reason you have put breath in my lungs is so that I could know you a little bit more today to prepare myself for the moment where I meet you, the greatest thing in the universe face to face. 
And I'm just saying this, Miss C is one of the 10 people I'd have for breakfast. Because I need help believing that. That the greatest thing I can do today is to know this God. That the greatest thing in the universe. Sooner or later, this broken world's going to break into all of our lives. And when it does, it's going to strip away all the gifts that we hold so dear. And if God's gifts are everything, then we'll have nothing. But if we come to see God as the valuable thing, like the necessary thing, the thing we can't live without, then when all the gifts are gone, do you know what we're still going to have? Everything. Everything. That, that's what we'll have. So, so let me pose that question again. If, if it's gifts or God, the best of God's gifts, beautiful gifts from God, if it's, if it's gifts but those gifts are void of God, would that, would that feel disastrous to us? Would we respond like the people of Israel here saying, no, that, that is the worst thing ever. No, God, if it's you or your gifts, we're choosing you. Is that, is that our answer? Now I'm going to finish here with this last question. If the greatest thing in the universe is God, which that's part of the insight this passage is giving us, the greatest thing in the universe is God. And if that's true, if the greatest thing in the universe is God, then how do we get God's presence back? How do we get God's presence back? This passage shows us that. How, how do we get God's presence back? And this is where I, I want to finish. In a lot of ways, that question is the tension point of the passage. Uh, in, in Exodus 33, verse 3, God says, um, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, because if I go among you, I will consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people right? I mean, th th this is the problem of the passage. God is the greatest thing, but our sin, our idolatry, our stiff-neckedness ha has separated us from God. And this is what sin always does. It always separates us. So it leads to this question. How in the world are we ever going to get God's presence back? H how are God's people ever going to have God dwell with them again? And in many ways, this is really the question of the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 3 on is answering that question. How will we ever be reconciled to the presence of God again? If you think about Genesis 1 and 2, we've talked about this a lot, a lot over the last few months. Uh, one way to see Genesis 1 and 2 is God's presence uh, received. God creates first parents he puts them in a beautiful place this beautiful garden full of amazing wonders and amazing gifts to our first parents but even more than giving them a garden in this beautiful place God gives them himself God is walking with our first parents in the cool of the day then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and it's God's presence lost through sin this is the disastrous effects of Genesis chapter 3. Our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, just an all-out rebellion against God. And, and in that sin, because of that sin, the presence of God that was received in Genesis 1 and 2 was lost. They were cast out of the garden, out of the place, and they were cast out of God's presence. If you remember how Genesis chapter 3 ends, it ends with an angel with a flaming sword protecting the entrance back into God's presence. So this is the question of the Bible. How will humanity east of Eden ever get back to God? How, how is that ever? If God is the greatest thing in the universe, how will we ever know God again? How will God ever come back down and dwell with his people again? How is that ever going to happen? And Moses, as a foreshadow of the coming Jesus, he shows us in this passage. 
In verses 7 through 11, Moses goes into the tent of meeting on behalf of God's people. And then in verse 12, Moses says to God, to the Lord, he says, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Verse 14. And he, God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 15. And God says back, uh, 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 Moses says back to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it, not in us, in, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, Moses. You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What an amazing text. Now, I just want you to notice a couple things, and we're, we're done here. Uh, notice the end result. The end result of Moses' intercession is that the presence of God was regained for God's people. God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you. Hey, you know my presence, it was going to consume you if it went with you? Now my presence will go with you and not consume you. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest, God says. That's the end result. God's presence restored to God's people. Now what is the means? How did that happen? What opened up the possibility of God's presence with God's people? How was God's presence regained? Well, the answer in this text is Moses standing in the people's place, interceding on their behalf. That's how God's presence was regained. If you look back to Exodus chapter 32, Moses, when he met with God right after the golden calf incident, he went and he said, I am going to atone for their sin in verse 30. And Moses comes up to God and says, God, yes, these people have sinned greatly, but how about we do this, God? If you won't forgive these people, why don't you blot me out, not them? God, God, take my life. Don't, don't take their life. And now, what do we learn in this passage? We learn this. The presence of God was regained, not because God was pleased with the people, but because God was pleased with a person, namely Moses, who was standing in the place of the people. Now, does that sound familiar to any of us? Moses, like so many Old Testament heroes, is a shadow. And that shadow is pointing us forward to Jesus, who's the substance. Now, think about the New Testament with me for a moment. Who intercedes on behalf of God's people? What's his name? Uh, Jesus does. Uh, even there upon the cross, pleading for our forgiveness. Uh, who is the mediator who stands between God and his people? Who is that? Yeah, it's Jesus. Who is it that atones for our sin, that, that, that is the sacrifice for our sin? It's his life for, for our life. Who is that person who atones for our sin in the New Testament? His name is what? Jesus is his name. If you want a simple four-word summary of the good news of Jesus, a four-word summary of the gospel, here it is. Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. And now think about what Exodus 33 is doing. Moses in the people's place is pointing to Jesus in our place. 
It's showing us the way that God's presence is regained for God's people. It's because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that God, the greatest thing in the universe, is made available to us. This is the whole point of 1 Peter 3, 18. For for Christ, who also suffered once for sin, the righteous, he's the righteous for us, the unrighteous. Why did he do that? Here's Peter's answer in 1 Peter 3, 18. That he might bring us to God. That's the whole point of the Bible. It's the whole point of the gospel is that we might be brought to God, the greatest thing in the universe. Now, here's what's so ironic. It is possible for people to know the facts of the gospel. Yes, Jesus came. Yes, Jesus lived for us. Yes, Jesus died for us. Yes, Jesus even rose from the grave. For us. It's, it's, it's possible to know all of those precious things, even to savor the, those incredibly precious things and still miss the point of those things, the, the point of all of Jesus' work for us is to bring us to God, the greatest thing. The, the point of all of those things is not that we would just know those things. It's that our heart would know God, the greatest thing. That's the whole point of the good news of Jesus, to take us all the way to God. So let me close with this. On June 8th, 1956. It's just an illustration of what life with God, knowing and loving and savoring and valuing the greatest thing in the universe as the great thing. On June 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other men were martyred. These men went to Ecuador. They lived in the middle of nowhere. They were giving their lives to get the gospel to an unreached uh, tribe. Now, think about that for a moment. Um, Each of those men, they they were married, they had wives, they had sons and daughters. They they had their whole life in front of them. Now just ask yourself the question, what what is it that made them risk it all? To put everything on the line, what what made them do that? What What is working inside of people to open up the capacity in them to love other people like that? to suffer like that for the sake of evangelism and getting the good news of Jesus out there? But what is, what is making that possible? What is, what is going on inside of a human heart to do that? Well, five years before his death, on January 15th, 1951, Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal. Here's what he wrote. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious. This is just, he's just out for a walk in the countryside, and this is is how he's seeing and thinking. This is the grid through which he sees the world. I I walked out to the hill just now. It's exalting, delicious, to to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree, with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God? What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, the the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him and please him, perhaps in mercy he will give me a host of children that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose fingers set them to burning. 
But if not, if only I may see him, if only I may smell his garments and smile into his eyes, oh then, not stars, not children shall matter, only God himself. That's a man who's learned the lesson. Nothing with God is better than everything without God. That's a man who, whose heart is treasuring God above every gift, who Jesus really has become his promised land, the thing he can't live without. And that heart that treasures God above all things, that heart is the very heart God wants to give us today, restore in us today, bring back to life in us today. That's the heart he's after. Will you pray with me? There where you are. I want to give you just a moment there with your head bowed and I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to press into you what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Just allow you a moment to wrestle with that question. Has the greatest thing in the universe become your great thing? This morning, is the greatest thing in the universe the thing that has captured your heart, enthralled you? If not, this is a moment for you to be able to turn from those lesser things, those things that you brought in this morning that were capturing your heart, to to turn from those things. This is what the Bible calls repentance, turning from lesser loves and coming back to God, the great thing, your, your true love. So, Father, would you, would you come and meet with us? And, God, would you interact with our hearts today in a way that would, that would allow us to see you today in, in a new way, that would allow us to see you as the greatest thing in the universe? Oh, oh God, would you, would you do that? Would you... Would you open our blindness today? God, would you give us the gift of sight today? God, would you, would you bring our hearts in alignment with the way that you have made the world? 
May, may you, the greatest thing in the universe, be the great thing that has captured us. Oh God, do that in me. God, do that in us. Make us a church like that. Who, if, if given the, the decision that the either or is created, have all the gifts just void of God, that it would feel disastrous to us. That that would feel like a can't-do moment for us. Oh God, would you do that? Would you do that for us? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.